How do you know if God is real? Is it something that you feel? Is it something that you guess, switch off your brain and acquiesce? Is it your imagination or does the claim have some foundation? What would it take to convince you that there is a God? Or if you're a believer here this morning, what would it take to convince your friends that there is a God? Would it be an equation proving somehow that God must exist? Uh, A video showing some sort of unexplainable miracle? An experience of of such a thing yourself, that you've actually seen uh, something like that? A series of (coughs) unexplainable coincidences? What evidence would you need uh, to show you that God uh, was real? Well, the problem with all evidence, as we're going to talk a bit about evidence this morning, is that we see it through our own, a word called presuppositions. It's like our own pre-existing beliefs about the world, the eyes that we see the evidence through. So, for example, you might be somebody who uh, thinks that you're particularly uh, good-looking this morning. Uh, maybe some of you, I don't know. <laughs> um, and imagine you're walking down the street, and people keep turning their heads to look at you. And you think, wow, all the evidence seems to suggest that I am really, really good-looking. Because everybody is turning their heads and looking at me. Because your pre-existing belief, your presupposition, that you're reading your evidence through is that, well, I'm really handsome, people are looking at me, therefore I must be really handsome. Now imagine for a second the same scenario, but you think that you're really ugly. And you go out into the street, and people start looking at you, turning their heads, and you think, oh no, people are looking at me. That must mean I'm really, really ugly. That's why people are turning their heads and looking at me, because I'm really ugly. That's your pre-existing belief. And it affects how you read the evidence. Both those people walking through the streets have exactly the same evidence. Somebody is turning around and looking at them. But their pre-existing beliefs actually taint how they view that, don't they? They taint how you understand the evidence that you're being given. And one of our big presuppositions as, as people is whether our world is like a closed system where nothing can interfere from outside or whether our world is an open system with things from outside that can affect our world, even if they're beyond our immediate perception. If we believe in a closed system universe, we'll read all our evidence about God one way, won't we? Because we'll say, well, there can't possibly be anything coming from outside. If we believe in an open system, then we'll read it in another way, won't we? So before we start this morning looking at any evidence for God's existence, how we can know that God is real, I just want you to be aware of your presuppositions. If you believe in a closed system universe, be aware that's what you believe. It might, though, just be worth asking this morning, why do you believe that? Maybe just this morning, open your mind to the possibility that there may be other explanations. So this morning, I'm going to put forward three evidences for God's existence. But can I say this morning, if you've already written off God's existence, if you haven't got an open mind, they're going to do absolutely nothing for you. If you believe in that closed system universe, well, you're going to read the evidence a completely different way. So I'd encourage you to listen this morning with an open mind. The first uh, evidence uh, that we have is creation. Creation. The world around us. Not just the fact and functionality that there is something, but also that the beauty and complexity of what there is. So... There's the fact of creation, isn't there? Something implies 
someone put it there. Something implies someone to, or something that, that, that made it there. Whatever you think about the universe, somehow it got here. Uh, whatever you think uh, about what it did. But where did it come from? Well, even modern science can't answer that question. So they suggest there might be a huge explosion that began our universe, but they can't explain exactly what it is that exploded or where that came from. They can't explain who invented the laws of physics that actually allow for an explosion. I don't want to say too much about this because next week we're looking at science and faith, but the fact of creation implies a creator. The existence of laws implies a lawmaker. So there's the fact of creation points to someone put it there in the first place. But there's also the functionality of creation. The fact that our world works. So the laws of physics are just right for matter to exist, aren't they? For energy to exist. For gravity to operate. Someone said that our universe is a bit like a Goldilocks universe. Do you know what I mean by that? Goldilocks uh, who went and, you know, it wasn't, the first one was too hot, the next one was too cold. There's one that was just right. Well, that's what our universe is like, isn't it? It's got the, just the right laws for us to be here. It's got just the right laws for us to exist. And our Earth, well, it, it's just the right distance from the sun. It's in, they actually do call this the Goldilocks zone. Uh, just not too hot, not too cold. Uh, just the right distance from the sun. The moon is just the right distance from the Earth that actually it causes tides... But it doesn't cause tidal waves. So all these things show us that our creation works. Actually, there's, there's a design behind it. But I should tell you, though, that that alone doesn't cut the mustard. When you look into arguments about creation, you'll find that people from the other side, philosophers, have given you another explanation of this. They argue that you can only make this argument about Goldilocks, if you like, if you exist Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? You can only argue that you're in the Goldilocks zone if you exist. And they argue that if you were outside of the Goldilocks zone, you wouldn't exist. So therefore, every creature in the world, if there are any other aliens out there, every one of them will look and say, wow, we're in the Goldilocks zone. We're in just the right position. Because if they weren't, well, they couldn't be there, could they? But the fact is that our universe is is not just functional. Um, it's not just that it exists, but actually our universe is beautiful and complex too. Have you ever thought about the beauty of creation? The universe is not just a functional machine, it's a beautiful work of art. Let me show you what I mean. I've just realised I've got the wrong headings on my uh, PowerPoint, but I think there should be... There we go. These, as far as I'm aware, have no filters or Photoshop or anything like that. This is the world that we live in with its beautiful colours and its amazing life. These different things are real things around our world. There's a beauty to the world in which we live. There's a goodness. If you watch all those nature programmes, you you see these amazing things that are there. Things that you never even dream of making. Even down to a little snowflake uh, that's there. Everyone individual, everyone beautiful. There's a functionality to the universe, but it's a beautiful universe. Now, science in general claims to be able to explain the functionality, how things work. But it can't explain the beauty of creation. 
It can't explain why the world is beautiful. So, for example, it could explain, you know, why the moon is at a certain distance from the Earth. But it can't explain the beauty of that, with us being that distance from the moon and that distance from the sun, that actually you get beautiful solar eclipses every once in a while. That seems to me pretty amazing, that it's just the right distance to block out the sun. So not only does it function, but it produces something beautiful. No one can explain why the sky at night is beautiful by science alone, can they? This is what the Bible says. It's on the back of your notice sheets. Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The skies are there to declare God's glory. The beauty of the natural order is there for us to go, wow, there is no way that this is an accident. We're supposed to go, wow, there must be an artist behind this world. I mean, think about it. Have you ever thought about works of art? Nearly every work of art that we've got that is there are basically copies of the natural world, aren't they? So Van Gogh's sunflowers are beautiful, but only because actual sunflowers are beautiful. Uh, Actually, art really is just copying God's creation, isn't it? So whoever designed this world is not a sort of cheap Lawrence Llewellyn Boeing, if you're old enough to remember who he is, sort of, uh, you know, crazy sort of uh, designs in homes. Actually, he's a master creator, isn't he? A master designer. Whoever designed this is the master of the masters. He's the greatest designer and engineer of all time. Because just think about it. Think about the complexity of creation. So we thought about the beauty. What about the complexity of creation? Not only is it functional and beautiful, it's incredibly complex. So think about the human body for a second. Did you know it takes 80 chemical reactions for blood to clot? So when you cut yourself, however small, there's 80 chemical reactions go before it clots. And if any one of those is missing, you don't clot. You'd bleed out. You'd die. Our network of blood vessels is so complex that if you laid them end to end, an adult's blood vessels could circle the earth around the equator four times. Just one person's. With our DNA, it gets even more amazing. If you laid all the DNA in a human body out end to end, it would go to the sun and back four times. So eight journeys to the sun. Scientists estimate that our noses, something we don't often think about very much, are so sensitive that they can recognise a trillion different scents. The sheer complexity of our world is astounding. And yet it functions. And yet it's beautiful. It's not the sort of natural equivalent of the cables behind your TV. Uh, I know we probably have less of them now, but I remember when you know you used to have Power cables for your TV, your VCR, your DVD player, your speakers, your skybox or, or whatever. And they all sort of had all the power cables. And then you had all the cables sort of connecting them to each other. That's complex, isn't it? It's not beautiful. <laughs> but nature's not like that, is there? Is it? There's an order. There's a balance. There's a beauty. Even with the incredible complexity and diversity And it's not Mother Nature that we have to thank for this. It's Father God. He was the one who set it all in place. A complexity that we still can't match with all our scientific discoveries and knowledge. So we haven't even succeeded in making one cell. And the human body apparently has trillions of them. 
The fact, the functionality, the beauty, the complexity of nature are there as an evidence for God. So we've got to ask the question, are we deliberately blinding ourselves to the obvious? That such a colossal, amazing, wondrous universe must have a creator. Well, that's our first evidence, creation. Uh, But it's not our only one. The second bit's a bit more personal. The second uh, evidence is conscience. Conscience. Our consciences are evidence that there is a God. There is a right and there is a wrong. What exactly they are, we can disagree over. But all of us agree that there is a right and a wrong. It's sort of hardwired into us. Everybody has that sense of right and wrong. Even psychopaths, apparently, even though they struggle with right and wrong with what they do, if you do something wrong to a psychopath, they know that you've done something wrong. All of us have that sense that there is a right and there is a wrong. And that sense of right and wrong, for most people, across most of time, across most of the world, has been remarkably similar. Every culture has its blind spots, but on the whole there's been a massive amount of agreement across the world, across time, as to what right and wrong are. And it's not just our culture that has an idea of right and wrong, but ourselves. We have problems sometimes with things that our culture doesn't have problems with. That shows you that it's not just a product of our our culture. And we sometimes don't have problems with things that our culture does. So morality is not something that our society makes up for us. It's actually something inside of each of ourselves. And if we break that code of morality, then our conscience comes into play. We feel bad about doing something we know is wrong. Our consciences can get that messed up sometimes, but they're always there, aren't they? That sense when we do something bad. Sometimes our conscience rewards us for doing good. You know, we feel good about ourselves, don't we, when we've done something nice. And sometimes it punishes us for doing wrong. We beat ourselves up over saying the wrong words or doing the wrong thing. The Bible speaks about it this way in Romans 2. Again, it's on the back of your notice sheet. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Even Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who have God's law, uh, God's written law, show that they know his law and they instinctively obey it without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. I think that might not have been the same translation you have on the back of your sheets. Um, But the Bible says that God put our consciences in there as a witness to God's law. The moral principles that God has set into the fabric of our world. So if there really is a moral dimension to the universe, if there really is a God's law, then it follows that there should be a God, doesn't it? Why else would there be a moral dimension to our universe if there were not a moral intelligence behind it? If our conscience is something real and not just a social construct, then it points us to the fact that there is a God. You see, the alternative is that the morality doesn't really exist in an absolute sense. But does that really match the evidence that we've got? Do we really believe, for example, that people and society decide morality? If so, then that leaves us with some uncomfortable conclusions. If bad things are acceptable in societies that accept them, as in, if a society thinks something is bad, then it's bad, and if a society thinks something is good, then it's good, then what about Nazi Germany? Well, their actions were correct if their society determines what was okay. They decided it was okay, so it was okay. 
What about the slave trade? If society decided it was okay, does that mean at the time it was okay? I don't know about you, but that irks me. It really gets me inside. I want to be able to say that the slave trade is wrong. I want to be able to say that genocide and racism are wrong. But if I depend on society for my morality, then I can't say that absolutely. Because if society changes its mind, then those things could become okay. Or if I travel to a different part of the world where they have a different set of moral opinions, well, suddenly that would become okay. So on what basis can I judge those awful acts if morality is just my opinion or just the opinion of the majority in my part of the world in the time that I happen to live in? We know slavery is wrong, don't we? But if it's just about moral consensus, then we can't say that. If, however, morality and conscience are real, then we can. But along with that, we have to accept that there is something or someone other than ourselves that sets those absolutes, that sets that morality in place. And the Bible says that that person is God. So conscience and morality are evidence of God. Now, the third piece of evidence I have, I think, is the one that's most compelling. Uh, I'm convinced that there is a God because of Christ. Christ is our third evidence of God. The ultimate proof that there is a God, I believe, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. So if he's correct, then there must be a God. Uh, So we really need to look at what uh, he said and who he is. But there are two possible objections before we even start to look, aren't there? One is, did Jesus ever claim to be God? And the second is, how can we know that what has been recorded about him is true? The two questions are obviously linked because the claims are recorded in the accounts, aren't they? But are they in the accounts? Does Jesus actually say that there is a God? Well, yes, we had John 10 read, didn't we? John 10, 30. Jesus said, I am the Father, are one. You might think, well, maybe it's been a bit ambiguous there. That maybe the people didn't understand. Well, did the people understand? Well, in John 10, 33, the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And that seems to be suggesting that he is God. And the people at the time understand that that is what he is saying, and they try and stone him for saying it. Actually, he is claiming to be God, and people understood what he was saying. And even if Jesus, even in the passage, Jesus calling himself the good shepherd is a claim to godhood. Because actually, it's not just the New Testament that talks about Jesus. The Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, talks about one who would come, who would be man and God. He'd also be a shepherd of God's people. So Ezekiel 34, you'll find that on the back of your notice sheets. This was written about the future. It was God speaking. Ezekiel 34, 15. He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. So God is saying, I will come, I will be their shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 23 says, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. So in the same paragraph, He says, I will be their shepherd, 
And then he names this man David, who died many years before, and said, no, actually, some David is going to be uh, their shepherd. Actually, this figure is going to be both God and man. God and some new David. And Jesus here then says, well, I am the good shepherd. I'm the one that Ezekiel was talking about, who would be God and man. I'm the one who looks after the sheep. And that's when he adds, I and the Father are one. He understands what this claim is. He's claiming to be God. So Jesus does claim to be God. But are these accounts reliable? Well, yes, they are. They're close in time to when Jesus lived. You can go and see the last one of the four Gospels that were written in Manchester, dated by skeptics in the first century, around 80 AD. It was found in Egypt, hundreds of miles away from where it was written. So but even by that time, it had made it a long distance from where Jesus was. The accounts of Jesus are consistent between themselves. Not in a sort of copy and paste way, but nor are they so unalike that they can't be put together into one story. And they're consistent with what went before. If you ever read the Bible, you see that the Bible is one big story. And the account of Jesus' life fits perfectly with the flow of the story. And the end of the Bible really ends the big story of the Bible. It takes you right back uh, to the beginning again in the garden. So if it's made up, well, it's masterfully made up because it continues the story so well and so completely. The other reason I think that the Gospels are true, the, the ones that hold these accounts, uh, these claims, is that they're unflattering to the writers. You see, the Gospels make uh, the disciples out to be idiots, really. That's putting it nicely, I suppose. They squabble, they argue, they come across sometimes as a bit dense. They abandon Jesus when he needs them most. Why would you write this about yourself if it wasn't true? Surely if we were writing the account, we'd sort of be tempted to skip over those sort of bits, wouldn't we? We'd make ourselves out to be amazing and understanding everything. But the Gospels seem to do the opposite, don't they? So they actually make out the writers to be uh, a little bit unflattering, in an unflattering way. And lastly, they're uh, inconsistent with the time around them. That might sound a little bit strange, but they're inconsistent with the time around them. What I mean with that is they're not just a product of their time. They make a claim that other writers were not making at the time, that there was a man who was God. Just think about how radical that is, to write this in your context being a group of monotheistic Jews, Jews who believe in one God. To say that this man was God. Why on earth would you write a book like that? It wouldn't be an immediate bestseller, would it, in your area, if that was not the culture of the time. So... Actually, there's an inconsistency with uh, the claims of the time, but they are consistent with the first century. Uh, all the, the language and everything like that works uh, really well. So I believe, actually, those accounts are real, and the claims that Jesus made are real. So this leaves us with the shocking conclusion that actually Jesus did make those claims that he is God. So we're left with what's commonly known as C.S. Lewis's trilemma. C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia books, but he also wrote books explaining the Christian faith. This is what he wrote about Jesus. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open option, uh, sorry, left, not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What C.S. Lewis, Lewis is saying there is that Jesus is either mad, bad, or God. If we're not prepared to say that he was God, then we're left with the two other options, that he's mad or bad. And those were actually the options that people were coming up with in Jesus' day. No one questioned that he was making the claims, but they questioned whether they were true. So John 10, that passage that we read, John 10, 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, bad, or is insane, mad. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressing, uh, being oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? God. So some thought he was mad, others thought he was bad, and others were starting to come to the conclusion that he was God. Why were they coming to this conclusion? Well, they argued, well, can a madman open the eyes of a blind person? And why would a demon want to open the eyes of a, a blind person? You see, the miracles that Jesus did weren't sort of look-at-me miracles. They were miracles of mercy, weren't they? Miracles of compassion. He healed the sick. He cared for the hungry, uh, sorry, cared for the needy, fed the hungry. And actually, the, the sort of look-at-me miracles are really just to reveal his identity. So think about his resurrection. He rose from the dead to show you that he is God. This is not the work of a demon. It's not a possibility for a madman. And on top of that, not just his works, but his character show us that actually he was God. He was caring, compassionate. Think about what the good shepherd does in our passage. He lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus did. He laid down his life. He paid for the sin of his people that they might enjoy a relationship with God. So his character was God's. And I think that's why people find his life and his teaching so compelling. Because we're looking at what God is like. Because if Jesus is God, then there is a God, isn't there? And that's what did it for me. I really became convinced as a young person from a non-religious family that there was a God when I looked into the predictions and the claims made by Jesus. You see, there were predictions made about Jesus that were outside of his control. His birth, his death, the response of people around him. That's not normally within our control, is it? That's not something a regular person can do. It's not normally a regular book that would predict it. I mean, we're not talking Nostradamus here. It's not all obscure. It tells you specific things about Jesus. So I concluded that this was no ordinary book. And Jesus was no ordinary man. And that it followed there must be something extraordinary behind these things. I concluded that there must be a God. And that he showed himself in Jesus Christ. So what about you this morning? What would it take to convince you that there is a God? God has given us evidence. He's not sort of playing a cosmic game of hide and seek. But do we have eyes to see that evidence? Could it possibly be that we've just followed our own presuppositions without thinking them through? I want to say this morning, if you're a Christian, there's the same danger for us, isn't there? We can be as guilty of blindly accepting our presuppositions what we might have heard from parents or what we heard at school. 
And I think it's healthy to question our presuppositions from time to time. Why do we believe what we believe? But there's one major difference, though, as Christians do. It's harder to say something or someone doesn't exist when you've found it. You see, once you find something, it's not a presupposition anymore, is it? So, for example, if you had the presupposition uh, that there was gold under the floor here and you started digging and you keep digging until you find I don't think there is gold under here, so please don't you know, rip up the floorboards or anything. But if you have the presupposition that there's gold underground, you'll dig until you find it. But once you find it, it's not a presupposition anymore. You don't believe it's true, you know it's true. And Christians are not only those who believe there is a God, Christians are those who have found him, who know him, who love him, who enjoy a living relationship with him. And that's my prayer for you this morning if you're searching for answers. Not just that you'll believe in a God, but that you'll meet him. So how do you know if God is real? Is it something that you feel? Is it something that you guess? Switch off your brain and acquiesce. Is it your imagination or does the claim have some foundation? Jesus is the given proof, the way, the life, the one, the truth. So meet him now and don't delay. Come to Jesus Christ today. The proof for God in Christ consists. He's how we know that God exists. Let's pray.